Prosecutors have opened their case in ex-Milwaukee cop Michael Mattioli's homicide trial. So these are the basic facts of the case as best as we know them. There was a party at Michael Mattioli's house. Joel Acevedo was there. Joel Acevedo and others fell asleep. There was a lot of drinking that happened. The next morning, Michael Mattioli says that he was awoken by Acevedo going through his pants pockets. He believes trying to steal something from him. The two scuffle. And here's where the divergence happens about what exactly happened. Prosecutors say that what happened is that as the two scuffled, others woke up and they're trying to subdue Acevedo, who was being very aggressive. Mattioli sat on his chest and choked him. That's what prosecutors say. In a chokehold for 10 minutes, Acevedo was unconscious and pulseless and died six days later. So that's the basic facts of the case, according to prosecutors. Julius Kim is the managing partner of Kim and Lavoie, and he is with us this afternoon. Julius, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, John. Good to talk to you. So defense attorneys say that these incidents might have happened, but that Acevedo actually died because of pre-existing health conditions and because there were drugs in his system and because he had a lot to drink. My first question is, if a defense team says, yes, my guy was on his chest compressing it, my guy did have his hands around his throat, but it was something else that actually killed him, is that a tough argument to make if you stipulate to the facts that there was a physical confrontation? Yeah, it's it's an argument uh, to make. These are, are tough cases to defend, especially because a lot of uh, the facts in this case, in all honesty, I don't think are disputed very much. And a lot of it was caught uh, through a 911 call, body cam, that type of thing. Uh, one of the things that uh, the state has to prove is not only that Matty Lee was the cause of Acevedo's uh, death, which clearly um, he was, um, or but that that cause that he was a substantial factor in producing the death. So that's where I think that the, that the defense is, is going with all this is, yes, uh, Mattioli's actions could have contributed to Acevedo's death, but was his actions of, of putting this chokehold on him, uh, was that a substantial factor in causing the death? So that's one of the arguments that I anticipate that we're going to hear from the defense in this case. How could that affect the potential sentence or exoneration of Mattioli in this situation if if the contributing factors to Acevedo dying were indeed that an altercation happened that, that pushed his body to the brink where it just couldn't handle it anymore, you know, how could that, that work for or against the defense? Yeah, I think that you're hitting the, the nail on the head in terms of why that's a tough uh, argument to put forth for the defense. Because if Mattioli's actions was a quote-unquote substantial factor in producing Acevedo's death, then um, then that element of the crime of reckless homicide is satisfied. That begs the question, you know, in terms of, well, would he have suddenly just dropped dead because of his previous health conditions? Probably not. I think what the defense is hanging their head on is the fact that Acevedo apparently survived for a few days after this incident occurred and then died. Uh, if he died right on the scene, I think it'd be a harder argument to make for the defense. But the fact that Acevedo died later, I think, uh, brings this argument at least to the forefront for the defense at this time. Criminal defense attorney Julius Kim is with us on WTMJ. So, Julius, in this case, it's already started, and we expect there will be more dirtying up of the of the guy that died. They're talking about his cocaine use. They're paying the picture that he wasn't a nice guy. He was belligerent. He fought a lot. He often drank too much. He was a regular drug user. What are the risks when a defense team portrays a deceased person in that light? Yeah, I think that I think that you're you're hitting a very very important part of of litigation strategy, especially for defense attorneys, because a lot of times defense attorneys 
are called upon to question or cross-examine, you know, witnesses that are alleged victims of crimes, police officers, that type of thing. And there is a risk of going after someone, especially someone who's deceased, too hard. I think that there might be a double-edged sword in terms of why the defense is bringing up this notion of, you know, whether Mattioli's actions was a substantial factor, not even necessarily because um, they think that they're going to be successful with that particular argument, but it allows them to bring in these other factors, right? The drinking, the alleged cocaine use, you know, some of these bad qualities, so to speak, of Mr. Acevedo, which on balance, you know, may work, you know, against the the state if they don't have a sympathetic victim here. Several of the witnesses called to the stand today were actually inside the house, including those who Mattioli had over the night before who were drinking, and I think some even admitted to being uh, intoxicated uh, at Mattioli's house, 911 responders, and and so on. There are 38 witnesses to be called here before the end of the week. Of those who perhaps didn't enter the house, what will the defense or prosecution be looking to, to extract from those people? Yeah, I think a lot of them might be foundational type witnesses to get into maybe other matters. Some of them might be expert witnesses to talk about, um, you know, what uh, factors contributed to uh, Acevedo's death. I think that some of those witnesses may have to, in fact, establish Acevedo's, you know, prior health history. Um, You know, a lot of those witnesses may uh, not be as substantial in terms of of providing, uh, you know, the the meat and, uh, and potatoes of the case. They might just be more foundational to try and get in other evidence in order to kind of lock the these pieces together of this picture that the state's trying to paint. Julius, this case was delayed for quite some time because the medical examiner, Brian Peterson, left office and then could not be found. So now it's finally moving forward, and the current chief medical examiner is on the witness list. The fact that the guy that did the initial exam is not there, has not been cooperative, and will not take part in the trial, is that a big deal for prosecutors? Is that something that could be advantageous for defense team? I don't don't think it's a big, big deal. I think that uh, you always kind of, as a prosecutor, and I used to be a prosecutor, you always kind of want the best witness, uh, you want the best evidence uh, on the stand. And, and that would be, in this case, the medical examiner that actually conducted the autopsy, uh, Mr. Peterson or Dr. Peterson. But evidently, he's decided not to make himself available or, or hasn't been the most cooperative with the state in terms of this case. And so the state has kind of gone to plan B now and, and is calling the, the current medical uh, examiner of Milwaukee County. And, and that can happen. In fact, that happens in a lot of different cases where uh, another uh, expert, another professional can testify as to the findings of, of another uh, doctor or another uh, coroner or medical examiner. So it's not the best way to do it, but uh, and I don't think it'll be devastating to the state's case, but um, I think that the state would prefer to call uh, Dr. Peterson. Yeah, it was just going to ask, you know, how common is this where somebody else is in position and has to field questions about a case that, you know, they weren't on duty or in that role at the time the incident occurred? It happens, um, you know, it happens more frequently than I think people think. But in this situation, when you think about it, it might actually hurt the defense um, because Dr. Peterson was the one who kind of announced what he believes the cause of death was here. And I think that the defense is going to argue that um, that might have been premature because Dr. Peterson might not have had in his hands or available to him Mr. Acevedo's you know, previous medical history, et cetera, uh, which could have contributed to the death. So without Dr. Peterson there to justify why he made the uh, ruling that he did, you know, that kind of puts the defense, uh, you know, uh, ties the defense hands a little bit here. Would you be more surprised if Michael Mattioli ends up testifying or if he doesn't end up testifying? You know, he may end up testifying because I think that a lot of the words uh, that he said on the scene were captured on body cam. A lot of them, quite honestly, don't sound very flattering. And I think 
quite frankly, there's going to be some explaining to do on his part in terms of why he did what he did, or more importantly, didn't do what he did, why he just, you know, didn't check for whether there's a pulse or whether Mr. Acevedo was breathing. You know, one of the things that the state has to prove here is that his conduct was in utter disregard for human life. And you look at the actions of not only what happened at the incident, but also sometimes what happens after the incident. And uh, once the officers arrive on the scene, uh, not a great picture is painted of Matty Holy. So he may have to get on the stand just to soften the blow of some of these statements or try to explain some of them away. Criminal defense attorney Julius Kim is a managing partner of Kim and Lavoie. Thank you so much, Julius. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you as the week goes on. Okay, sounds great. No problem.